Good morning. No Britney's mic this morning, so on handheld. So on Friday, we live in a block of flats, and I saw a young family, and it's great always to engage your neighbours if you can possibly do that, isn't it? I think as Christians, we should always be reaching out. And so I chatted with the family, and the young mother then was, I was going back up the stairs, she came up, and I said, they had a little three-year-old daughter, I said, I feel so intensely for families with children in Ukraine. That's makes it even worse, I think. And um, she, uh, she just, she stopped and she said, I am Ukrainian, right? My daughter is half Ukrainian. And um, I said how I'd have been able to go, I'd been privileged to go, uh, as Graham has, to Kiev to meet Andre and the team there. I've been to Preluki through that link, which is to the east of Ukraine, about 100 miles. And previously, I've been to Odessa. And, uh, and that's, you know, I've been WhatsApping with Andre just a few times, not, not a lot. And um, so uh, I asked for her details, and I sent her a card saying, would you like to come and pray with us at our 4 p.m. Zoom? But actually, she went to a rally in Manchester yesterday. and. Today she's texted me and she said thank you so much for your card and that she's literally sitting on a plane about to fly out because her family has been able to escape and that she'd left something in our letterbox and it was this um, with a... Because when I met her she was going off to buy material to make a flag of Ukraine and she's made one for me too. So thank God for that. So we Christians serve a God that's given me a focus of prayer, but we Christians serve a God who wants to bless all the nations, including both Ukraine and Russia. And God's promises are good for everyone who turns to him. And in today's passage, we're reminded that nothing can stop God bringing us to himself. And um, I guess there are people in Ukraine feeling very close to death. And when you face death that closely, you need to know where your faith is, what's going to happen. And so we're going through the Apostle Peter's letter written to Christians facing social stigma, but maybe even physical violence also in those days because their faith was more or less persecuted. That's a different to the situation in Ukraine. It's not a question of persecution there, but... Um, the Christians Peter was writing to lived in an area of the world we know as Turkey, literally across the Black Sea from Ukraine. Now, Peter is not speaking about international relations in his letter. He is speaking about interpersonal relations and our faith relationship with God. Um, so um, I've got a picture of a security driver bit set. I bought one of these a few years ago, not not doesn't look like this, but it's pretty similar. And uh, this has been a fantastic tool I've found. Uh, it's enabled me to repair quite a few things that the manufacturer hoped I would just throw away because I couldn't get into it because they'd bolted it together with bolts which had these fancy um, heads on them. And you need one of these bit sets to get into them. And as a result of that, I've been able to repair some things over the years instead of throwing them away. In fact, I recently sold something on eBay. I've repaired several times because I had one of these sets. 
Now, why am I showing you this? Well, that's because some parts of the Bible need more unusual tools to unlock them, and we're going to need some more unusual tools for the short passage today. But to put it in context, I'm going to read back from a couple of, from 1 Peter 3, from verse 8, before we get to the passage I'm actually, if you want to go back a couple of weeks, you can hear Dan and Ellie really helpfully opening up the passages, the first bit of this passage we're reading, and then we'll focus down on the passage we have. So verse 8 of 1 Peter 3, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Doesn't Jesus ask us to do something quite extraordinary? Anyway, we read on. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's a fearsome thing to be reminded of. You know, the line between good and evil does not run between Russia and the West. It runs straight through every human heart. And that was a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a dissident in the Soviet era. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who, um, sorry, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then we go on to the next verse, which is, was also preached about last week, but I just wanted to include it in my section. Uh, and I believe it's teaching us, this is my theme today, that there is nothing that can stop God bringing us to himself. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So just this verse 18 to 22, I think it has three kind of sections going to try and tackle a concise statement about what God did on the cross. Number two, a mysterious sequence that's something, that's something to do with the resurrection and Noah and baptism. 
And thirdly, a final statement re-emphasizing the resurrection plus ascension and describing Christ's authority at God's right hand. So going back to my drill, by, uh, drill driver, drill bit, driver bit, dry, uh, bits, <laughs> illustration, tied my tongue round. Um, the first tool we need to look at is the tool of systematic theology. And the second tool we're going to pick up later on for some of the later verses is biblical theology. And you might say, Andrew, what's the difference between systematic and biblical theology? Shouldn't all theology be biblical? Well, yes, that, that's absolutely true. But there's a particular label used and has an, a, a particular meaning. Now, I hate gardening. That's why we live in a flat. Um, but gardening is a helpful illustration here. You see, an English cotton cottage garden like this one is what biblical theology is like. It accepts that the Bible kind of muddles everything together into an amazingly beautiful um, but narrative. And, and biblical theology finds the patterns and themes and the beauty and the variety and mixture that we find in the scripture. Because if you've ever noticed, sometimes I wish the Bible was like an encyclopedia, you know, and I could look it up, leaf through to S about sin, back to J for Jesus, um, but back to F for the future, what's going to happen, you know, to P for promises. W wouldn't you like it if the Bible was organized like that? A bit like the back of the Gideon Bible, you know, they have little things a bit like that. But it isn't like that, and God must have meant it to not be like that. And, uh, and so biblical theology kind of looks at this f kind of smorgasbord of stuff that the scripture is and looks, for how all, looks at all that detail and sees how the big picture emerges from that. And I think that's what they're doing at Treehouse in recent weeks. But first of all, we need to t use the tools of systematic theology. And you see, systematic theology, uh, whereas biblical theology synthesizes all the details into a whole, systematic theology works by analyzing the big picture to categorize all the parts. So to return to the gardening analogy, if biblical theology is like the English cottage garden, systematic theology is like the plant nursery, right? You know, all the conifers together, all the heathers, all the pelagoniums, all the, you know, the, the ferns, all the succulents, they're all grouped together. And in a sense, the work of um, the systematic theology is to take the Bible and, as it were, if you had a paper copy, and I don't because I'm on iPad, and then it kind of snips up all the verses in the Bible and, and then pigeonholes them. It, when I was a student, I had a Christmas job once working for the post office as a postie. And in those days, you actually did local sorting. I mean, maybe they still do. We had a big rack of pigeonholes. And the first job when we got there at five in the morning or whatever was to sort the cart, the, the, everything into the boxes. I can't remember if it was a, I think it was a box for each street. And then you sorted your streets. Um, and it's a bit like that with systematic theology. You're snipping up all the, the different verses in the Bible. And then you say, all the ones about Jesus, we pop in that pigeonhole. All, all the ones about the Holy Spirit in that pigeonhole whole etc you get the feel yeah so um, it helps us to, dime, to to analyze all these different dimensions so when we read 1 Peter 3:18 if you've read it's the next slide um, if you've read um, the um, Bible quite a lot your mind will start racing along all other kinds of verses you've read about Jesus what Jesus was doing on the cross and so we can compare all these different passages to arrive at all the different dimensions of what God was doing when Jesus came to earth, but he died on the cross and was resurrected. 
And uh, over church history, it's a bit of historical theology for us. There's been various ideas. I just want to pick a few and share them with us. So uh, the first one is this. Jesus died to give us an example of radical obedience. This was popularized by this particular... Um, um, but by a guy called Faustus Sassinus. Um, this is two, 1 Peter 2.21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So there's an example of Jesus dying. It's, a, it's an example. And, and we get that very much. You know that very famous Christian hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's very much about the cross. But the last verse is, Were the whole realm of nature mine? This is on a slide. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing. Is there a, is this a problem? Slide's not there. Anyway, excuse me. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In other words, he's saying there's an example here that demands that I follow this radical example of obedience. Um, you know, the, the Ukrainian woman I met on Friday, she told me my partner is driving down to the border to fetch my parents. In other words, she was describing something of what God the Father did. He sent his son to come after us. And, uh, and so that, that her partner was, in a sense, doing something like Jesus does for us. But does giving an example on its own make Christ's death necessary? Really? I mean, surely if he was simply trying to give an example, he didn't need to go all the way to actually dying for us. Surely there could have been a less drastic option. I mean, couldn't he have just been born as a man and come for us? He doesn't actually need to die, does he? So, yes, Christ's sacrificial death is an example, but it must, the sacrificial death must have much more meaning than that. So here's another theory that was advanced by a guy called Peter Abelard, that Jesus died to demonstrate to us how much God loves us. And you find this in Romans 5, 6 to 8. You see Paul writes, the Apostle Paul, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Right? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, Christ's death shows us how much he loves us. This is a genuine dimension of what is happening when Jesus died on the cross. But we still need to ask whether this reason provides us with a necessary and sufficient ground for Jesus to actually have to die. Surely his love could have been demonstrated in less drastic ways. I mean, when we were much younger and our children were young, we went on holiday with another family who also had similar aged children about 10 different occasions. And um, often by the beach. That's where, you know, it always seems like a good place to take kids, doesn't it? And of all of us, the father in the other family was by far the strongest swimmer. Now, this never happened, but imagine this happened, that one day it was stormy, the red flags were out on the beach, which means what? Don't go swimming. And he says, I, and suddenly he jumps up, we're on the beach, you know, because you go to the beach whatever the weather, don't you? We're British, right? Um, and he just announces, I want to show to you how much I love you, and just runs into the stormy seas and gets drowned. Would I think that was a demonstration of his love? No. I would think it was a demonstration that he was having some kind of delusion or psychosis. Yeah? So there's got to be a better explanation. It's a good, it, it does demonstrate Jesus' love, but it's got to, there's got to be more. So 
The third one I'm just going to open up. Jesus died to pay a ransom to Satan to redeem us. Now, this was developed by one of the very early church fathers, Origen. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in the early church, as I understand it, this was by far the most popular view of what Jesus was doing on the cross. And um, so the, the idea was that because we'd sinned, we were obeying Satan, and therefore our lives were forfeit. We were now, Satan was now our master. We were his slaves. And you know, there's scriptures that tell us that stuff. But then they pushed that to saying, so Jesus has to pay Satan to get us back. Now, I, I think that there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that God owes Satan anything at all, right? And so I think most modern people would say, yeah, that Jesus paid a ransom, um, but it wasn't to do with paying Satan a ransom. It reminds me actually of that joke. Do you know this one? Do you know why elephants have big ears? Yeah, because Noddy wouldn't pay the ransom. Oh, sorry, is that out of date? Yes. Anyway, <clears throat> Peter emphatically teaches us in verse 22 that Jesus is Lord over demons and every other authority in the universe. And we need to know that as Christians because occasionally we will come across demonized oppression in our lives or in other people's lives. And, uh, and I, can, I think we should praise God that whatever addiction or enslavement is in our life, Jesus can ransom us from that too. He has paid for our freedom with his own precious blood, and that is wonderful. Um, but, but really, probably what Jesus is ransoming us from is the fact that our many choices to go the wrong way, to disobey God, to despise God and ignore him and dishonor him, have made us liable to exposure to God's righteous punishment. But Jesus came in and t took that punishment in our place. And so he paid that we can be set free. Now, there are many other dimensions, but I want to go to one other, which is... Um, really, I would say, the most fundamental dimension of what Jesus was doing for us on the cross, which comes through in 1 Peter 3, 18, that Jesus died to offer himself as a penal, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement for us and our sins, that he propitiated, as some of the translations have it, he propitiated God's righteous anger. He did something because God was angry about evil. And so what Christ did on the cross started to transform us by starting to kill evil off in us. Now, I think some people have a bit of a problem with God being angry about evil, but I don't. I think God should, and I think most of us know that we are angry about evil. I was in a gathering for prayer many, many years ago now once, and any of you familiar with prayers, getting to, Christians getting together for prayer, often they say break into small groups like we did this morning, and in that occasion we were all in three chairs, it was three of us sitting, and we were kind of sitting down and leaning forward earnestly praying. And uh, I know Christians often shut their eyes praying, but even then I didn't often do that. So I had my eyes open. And the, one of, as we were praying, one of the other guys in the group started putting his finger up his nose and picking his nose, right? And it was like, it was one of those things where you think, I shouldn't look, but I can't help but watch. This is just too awful. And then when he picked his nose, he was looking at it like this sort of thing. It was like, oh my goodness, please. And, and then eating it, right? No, no. Right, in, and then he did it several times more, and I mean, I was kind of almost gagging. It was like, oh my goodness, this is so gross. And um, 
And, but as, as this was happening, I just felt God saying to me, you're gagging because he's picking his nose. I don't care he's picking his nose. But there are things that make me gag, that repulse me. And some of the things are in your life. And, um, you know, it's easy to understand maybe that God is repulsed by the rapist, the child molester, and he is. But maybe he's equally grossed out by our pride, our envy, our negativity, our bullying, our mocking, the grudges we nurse, our lying, our slanders. The list goes on. I've badly let people down in my life sometimes and I've just wondered whether they'd be able to forgive me. Do you know, it really is a real question. Could God possibly forgive me? But what Jesus on the cross did answers that question. 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the New Living Translation. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin that we could be made right with God through Christ. Hallelujah. He died to bring us to God, to bring us to the one that ultimately, we might not realize it often, but truly we have utterly offended and grossed out. And Christ is our advocate to bring us to the Father who does love us, but who does not love our sin. This offering for sin can be called a propitiation. We could never have done this for ourselves. So Jesus did it for us. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since Jesus, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 17. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is the incarnation, Jesus taking on humanity, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So this cross releases a transformational power in us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Do you see there's a transformational purpose that flows from this? And Paul speaks about this in Titus. Let's skip that slide. So taking these many others in uh, together... Let me try and put something as a statement here. Jesus died in our place as a penal substitute. I missed the word penal, sorry, on the slide. As a penal, in other words, he took the punishment for us in our place. There was an exchange, a substitution. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one, that's Jesus. The unrighteous ones, that's you and me. To propitiate God's righteous wrath against evil and thereby to reconcile us to God the Father forever and to transform us from the inside out by giving us a new status before God as his children. And that is a sufficient and necessary ground for why Jesus died on the cross. So 
um, if you remember the illustration I'd said about the family we used to go on holiday with, if in that scenario one of my daughters had gone into the sea and got into trouble, and he as a very strong swimmer had rushed in and had managed to rescue her to pass out, but then got sucked into the undertow and drowned, such things have happened. Then I, he would have demonstrated his love for me by saving my daughter, even though he died in the process. So the death of Jesus can only make sense if his death was necessary to save us from sin and death, and that's what scripture tells us. And it was required because a holy God will not merely overlook sin, because if he were just to overlook sin, then the future universe will continue to be filled with evil. But God's vision of his future that he's told us in scripture is of a world that is freed from evil and suffering and sorrow, in which there's no more war. So God must either kill evil from within us or kill us, and that is exactly what's going to happen. You have a choice. So the, the, the line between good and evil, as I said before, does not run between Russia and the West, but through every human heart. We all need saving. And that's why we break together, bread together, which we'll do later on. Still got the other section of the passage to deal with. We recall his body broken for us, his death on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and alive to Christ. So he died to bring us to God. I, I love that. I, I'm not a strong swimmer myself. I find open water a little bit scary. <clears throat> and if I was on a ferry and it sank and I was in the sea, uh, it would be no good for the helicopter to come along and just throw me a life jacket. It wouldn't really do much God good if they dropped a rope. I need the guy to come down and put me in the harness and rescue me. And I think that's what Jesus does. So the next bit of this passage... Um, um, is, is actually, the whole path, this little section is quite like a creedal statement. Verse 18, he was put to death in the body, verse, uh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the crucifixion, made alive in the spirit, that's the resurrection. Um, you know, when, when it says he was put to death in the body, this is quite a significant thing. Some of you have met Sam Keesing, who's a part of the Bradford church new church group now he grew up in the church where i was down in surrey and i remember his father coming to me once and telling me how sam when he was very very young had got his dad into a theological knot he'd said to his dad dad jesus is god right and his dad said yes and, and then sam had said and jesus died on the cross right and dad said yes and the, sam then said so god died yes and his dad said to me, Cain reported this to me and said, hmm, I didn't know how to reply. Did, did God die? And, you know, people have puzzled over this, but the, the thing is, Jesus was God and man, and it was the man that died, right? God can't cease to exist. God is everlasting, yeah? So, so there is an answer to that. <laughs> and, and Peter has that here because he says that Jesus died, he was put to death in the body, right? He's telling us that. So here we have the theological answer to that question. Verse 22, a bit more of the creed, who's gone into heaven, that's the ascension, and is at the right hand of God, that's Christ's glorification. So, oh dear, I've really lost timing here um this thing about the resurrection noah baptism honestly i've read so many theories about how to interpret that there's a couple of verses there um and so i'm not going to actually i'm just going to say it's a very puzzling part of the bible there are some parts of the bible people have used all kinds of tools and they 
really can't make sense of it. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to say anything that matters too much either way. So we can just say, well, one day when we meet Jesus, we can find out what that means for sure. In the meanwhile, let's park it and just find out. You know, as Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist philosopher said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. So we can park that and um, uh, move on. So... Um, uh, so, uh, so we're told about baptism, uh, verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this. So we're told about Noah's ark. I'm going to take it as read. You know about Noah's ark. You know, he built the ark. It took him 80 years or something like that. It says back in Genesis, if you want to look it up. Um, and uh, it was an episode of God's judgment. But eight people were saved and two of every animal. You know the story. Um, and Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to the event of the ark, now saves you. Um, so uh, this is where another tool comes into play. Because we read here, baptism corresponds to this in the English Standard Version. Next slide, three other English translations. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, NIV. New Living Translation, that water is a picture of baptism. Uh, NRSV and baptism, which this prefigured now saves you. There's actually a technical term in here, which is the Greek word you could translate type. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a way of interpreting scripture that is used by the Apostle Paul, by Peter, and it's, it's that, that God has produced certain events or types which are the way he works. So um, it's, it's to, um, so like the, the, the event of Noah's Ark was an actual event and then there are other events that are, follow that same pattern and Peter is saying baptism is like that. So the pattern is salvation through water because God is in control of events and therefore he could make that event happen and use it as a, an event to teach us. Okay, So um, when, when, we, when we read about that, we begin to realize, oh yes, there is a bit of a pattern because not only does the ark, did they, Noah and his family get saved through water, but then the Red Sea, they were taken through water. The Israelites are taken through the, sea, the, the, the river Jordan. Do you remember these different stories? And now we have baptism. This is a repeating pattern which biblical theology helps us to identify. And it's not, of course, when we baptize people that the water saves them. We don't pray over the water. Peter is very clear in verse 21 that it's not the water that saves us, but it's through the power of the resurrection of Jesus that baptism is so powerful. So Peter wants us to realize that baptism is following the pattern God has set, a pattern of salvation through water. So to plagiarize the Mandalorian, if you're a fan of that, this is the way. Right? God has a first step. Obviously, not many of you have seen Mandalorian. It's just a Star Wars spin-off thing. Anyway, God, <clears throat> so God has a step of obedience for all of us, and he invites us to get baptized. And so I want to encourage you, if you have faith in Jesus, he wants you to get baptized. And it's such a simple step to take. Why would you not take that step? I encourage you to take that step. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a Christian converted in the 19th century. 
He started a church in London and grew it to 5,000, more than 5,000 people in attendance. So God was really with him. And he wrote about his baptism in the River Lark in 1850. I felt as if heaven and earth and hell might gaze upon me, for I was not ashamed there and then to own myself a follower of the Lamb. My timidity was washed away. It floated down the river into the sea and must have been devoured by the fishes, for I have never felt anything of the kind since. Baptism loosed my tongue, and from that day it has never been quiet. I lost a thousand fears in the river Lark, and I found that in keeping his commandments there is great reward." Baptism is important. It's not just a symbol. I believe it can be a liberating thing for people as we engage with it by faith. So I want to suggest you stand now and we can um, sh we skip the Genesis passages, please. And we'll say the Nicene Creed together. It's one of the ancient creeds of the Christian church. The band could come up because... Uh, um, and. Maybe we should skip the Nicene Creed. What do you think? Yep. Good. So, we can all say this together because it's on the slides. Yay? If you don't want to say it, that's also fine. But I invite you to join with me in declaring the faith that we have together then. We believe in one God, the Father the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.